Welcome to the Practicing the Way podcast, where we explore a life of apprenticeship to Jesus in the modern world. In season one, Tyler Staten, the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church, sits down with John Mark Homer, the founder of Practicing the Way, to discuss his new book, also called Practicing the Way, Be With Jesus, Become Like Jesus, Do As He Did. In this episode, we explore the third goal of an apprentice of Jesus, to do as Jesus did. So if you've been following up to this point, you'll know that we have defined apprenticeship to Jesus as being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And in the very last episode, we talked all about ultimately spiritual formation ending at becoming a person of love. Yes. You know, and so I think when defined as becoming a person of love, people could say, yes, I can get there. But doing what Jesus did, I mean, isn't he God? You know, <laughs> how can I do that? What does that mean? So could you add a little color here? Yeah, well, I mean, again, you have to circle back and define love. Love is not a nice feeling in Jesus' paradigm. It right. is an action. It is not that it's not something you feel, but it is ultimately something you do. You know, it is the flow of love through you. So, yeah, I think this is where the apprenticeship metaphor or paradigm is incredibly helpful mm -hmm. because if you are an apprentice whether you're an apprentice of jesus or an apprentice of a mechanic or an electrician or an artist or a business person you are learning from a master how to do what the master does so you know in our church there is a plumber's apprentice who is in a four-year-long training program to become a plumber and I would assume that his goal is not to get to the end of that four-year program and just know how to answer a test on plumbing code right. or even repair the occasional leaky faucet. I would imagine that his goal is to know how to plumb a house from scratch. And um, the trick is a lot of disciples of Jesus don't think that way about the life of Jesus. Hmm but we are apprenticing under Jesus, not just to become kind and patient, but to actually say and do the kinds of things that Jesus said and do. You know, in apprenticeship learning theory, there's this four-stage process, Let's see if I can remember it, between master and apprentice. And it's, I do, you watch, I do, you help, you do, I help, you do, I watch. Mm -hmm. And you could almost map that onto Jesus' relationship with his disciples in the four Completely. Gospels. Yeah. Like step one, I do, you watch. Come and see. Mm -hmm. Come and spend the day with me. Come and follow. Yeah. I will go out, heal the sick, preach the gospel, teach the way, cast out demons, stand up against injustice, all the things Jesus did, say all the things Jesus said. You just follow me around and watch. Mm -hmm. And what happens by the very end Jesus' marching orders, go and make disciples of all nations, which is you do, I watch, or I help. You know, Lord, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. So I just think reframing apprenticeship as learning from the master how to say and do the kinds of things that Jesus said and did. Now, you have to bring disclaimers to this, like um, dating myself here. 
but um, I was there in the glory days, the late 90s of the WWJD movement. Yep. What would Jesus do when the bracelet was all the rage? Yeah, I was rocking one of those. I, I was, I thought I was too I was cool. rocking several of those, actually. I played in an indie rock band. I was like, I'm not wearing that, you know? <laughs> but I remember, uh, you know, I, it's a good question. And they're all the certain preachers were all mad about it. It's not about what Jesus would do. It's about what he did, you know, all of mm-hmm. that stuff. But at some level, a more helpful question is, what would Jesus do if he were me? Because most of us are not a celibate Jewish rabbi from the first century. Right. You know, you're a university student or a mom with a two-year-old or an entrepreneur or a landscape architect or whatever. You know, we, we do our things. We have our life, our job, our relationships. The driving question of an apprentice of Jesus is, in each situation, what would Jesus say and do? And how do I train under him to become the kind of person, formation, who naturally would speak and act and live and love as Jesus would in this situation? Yeah. On the pages of the New Testament, we read about the fruit of the Spirit Hmm. and the gifts of the Spirit, Right. which sometimes there's an unhelpful dichotomy drawn between the two. Obviously, they're intermingled with would, one Would you another. name what some of those are for those listening that are new Absolutely. to that framework? So, yeah, so the fruit of the Spirit would be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yeah. Inner dispositions of the heart. Right, as, as defined in Galatians 5. It's all about our character, yeah. right? And the gifts of the Spirit are things like encouragement and leadership and prophecy and healing and teaching and miracles and, yeah, and, yeah. and so forth and and so it's essentially the character of Jesus and the stuff Jesus did so yeah. all, all of these things are embodied in Jesus and I imagine that if we were talking about doing what Jesus did exclusively on the fruit of the spirit side, exclusively yes. on the on or the even character. on the like relational side or emotional side, yeah, then yes. then people might say totally yeah, that mean. is the aim and destination of spiritual formation. But if you're talking about the stuff he did, I mean, isn't this the guy that like walked on water <laughs> and God? turned water into wine? Yes. Do I need to keep weddings going? If oh. you know, so so can you explain a little bit more on yeah, a new that practice side of coming things. from practicing the yeah. way is turning water into wine. So like <laughs> week one exercise, take a jar of water right. and stare at it. No. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're really unfortunate in some ways to come after the enlightenment. And fortunate in other ways. But if you know kind of Western... Yeah, there's a lot of ways I could count as fortunate. <laughs> yes, I think that would... More pros than cons. Yeah. But I think, you know, if you have a kind of cursory grasp of Western philosophical tradition, in the Enlightenment, you know, a couple hundred years ago in Europe, there was this whole wave of skepticism around anything... Uh, it's where the language supernatural comes from. A lot of people don't right. even realize that's not historic language. It's not biblical language. It's an enlightenment paradigm that some things are natural and can be proven by science and other things are supernatural and cannot be proven by science. They have to be taken on faith. That's not the worldview of Jesus at all. But or, that is or follow the laws of nature and yes, transcend the, the laws, laws of, of nature, nature which yep. is science. Right? And, of course, quantum physics is now blowing up that dichotomy. Right. But, um, you know, that's an enlightenment paradigm. And there were all these people that basically said, hey, we used to think that when the sun came up in the morning, 
God did a miracle every day, and it was God that made the sun come up, and God that made the rain come, and the crops grow so we don't die. Now we know better. Now we know yeah. that there are natural laws well, in the universe. Actually. Mm -hmm. So this is whole enlightenment paradigm. And then there was this whole group of intellectual elites, many of them the founding fathers of America, who didn't want to throw out all Judeo-Christian morality or even all theism. You know, you have the deism movement at right. that time, which is kind of gone now. The There's, divine watchmaker Yeah, God's theory. the, yes, yeah. exactly. It's like he made the watch and now it runs on its own. He mm -hmm. made the world and now the world runs without God, which is now like a, just a, it's a historical idea. Very few people right. think that way. But out of this worldview, there were all these people that basically said, hey, we, we believe that Jesus was a good teacher but uh, but he didn't do these other things. Walking on water, this is nonsense. Prophecy, healing, resurrection. And then what happened from those that were really staunch, like followers of Jesus, is the comeback was well-meaning. Like the mm -hmm. heart was right, but it was intellectually like fatally flawed. Was basically, yeah, but like look at the miracle stories of Jesus. Mm -hmm. An ordinary teacher or rabbi doesn't walk on water, doesn't come back from the dead, doesn't heal the sick, doesn't raise Lazarus. That's proof that Jesus was God, right? So this is language that still lives in the Western church, as you know. Um, the problem with that logic is there were lots of people prior to Jesus in the library of scripture that did the exact same types of miracles. Right. Like Elijah walked on water and, you know, called down fire from heaven and raised the dead. And there were lots of people after Jesus, namely his own disciples, Peter who raised the dead and Paul and who did the same thing. But yet we don't read a story of Elijah or Peter doing a miracle and say that's proof that Peter was God or Elijah was God. Mm -hmm. So there's this fatally flawed logic to it, just at a theological level, that then has this unintended, disastrous consequence where, of course, the logic is if Jesus did this miraculous stuff because he was God, then naturally we can't do these types of things because we are not God. Mm -hmm. But there's another way of reading these stories. You know, the theologian N.T. Wright calls the, the gifts of the Spirit, the miraculous kind of stuff in the Gospels as signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God. Yeah. Like don't, when Jesus heals a sick person, just like Elijah did and Peter did later and Paul and many people do today in the tr Christian tradition, don't read that as that's proof that Jesus was God. There's truth to that. That does, you know, validate Jesus' claims to be one with the Father. That's not all wrong. But read that as this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God breaks in. It looks like blind people seeing again and lame people walking and ostracized people being brought to the table. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. And um, under this rubric, Jesus, then you have to ask, like, where did Jesus get his power? And I think the gospel writer Luke's answer to that question is by the Holy Spirit. And there's these beautiful lines in the gospel right. of Luke, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, fill, out, fill in the blank of the story. And then as the New Testament kind of develops at a theological level, and this is a key part of your life and work, so I'm yeah. saying this to the listener, not to you. Yeah. But you know, a key facet of New Testament theology is that that same spirit that was on Jesus to empower him to do all of these things whether we would call them natural or supernatural, again, not biblical language, miraculous or not, is now on you and me. It's on all of mm -hmm. Jesus' followers. 
So I'm not saying that we go out tomorrow and, you know, go to the local morgue and start praying really hard. But I am saying an aspect of our apprenticeship to Jesus is training under him to continue what he started. Right. It, maybe I could offer a couple of brief thoughts here that yeah, would love that to might that. be helpful too. One is we started with that four-part process of apprenticeship like that you would apply to anything that I watch. Yes. Or you do, or I do, you watch. Yes, I do. And then you it know. ends yeah. with I watch, you do. Also, you know, in the Gospels, Jesus has an encounter with Nathaniel in, I think, John chapter 1. Um, but w- at the beginning of one of the Gospels, if it isn't John, and, and Nathaniel, he says, oh, you're amazed because I said I saw you under yes. the fig tree. You'll see even greater things than these. So he's saying, yes. you're going to watch me do so much bigger things than that. And then Jesus later says... In that same gospel. Yeah, yeah. you will do even greater Greater things things than you've seen me doing. So I'm going to watch you do even greater things than the things that you have been watching me do. And so Mm. this is that same uh, sort of trajectory that we began talking about. And it includes both the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit. And then secondly, I think people often get really hung up, particularly when it comes to the more miraculous gifts of the Spirit, like take physical healing, for example. Yes, it's a good example. With, I'm not sure how this works, and so it produces mystery and disappointment, and all of that is so, so real and must be acknowledged. And it must be acknowledged that every sign of the kingdom, we don't know quite how it works and involves mystery and disappointment. Mm, Interesting. So, for instance... um, we regularly share the gospel with other people. We evangelize. We, we preach the gospel to people. Sometimes we see people respond to that message, having a transcendent encounter with God, and it's as if these puzzle pieces in their inner world align where this message just makes sense at this moment. And other times we don't. And I am a preacher who regularly like <laughs> shares the gospel with people. And you can't tie the effect to like how good the sermon was nope. or how good the conversation was. No. And, and there's a mystery to and it. And I don't stop preaching the gospel if no one comes to faith on yeah. a Sunday, right? I don't say, well, I don't know, I don't get it, that method doesn't work, and I've been broken by the disappointment. I don't understand why. It seems to land some ways sometimes in others. There's so much mystery wrapped up in that. But I know my part is to preach the gospel. I have seen people miraculously physically healed, and I've prayed for a lot more people that I've never seen healing from. And I don't know when God is forming someone with his presence through suffering. I don't know when the tragedy of sin is just wreaking havoc in the world in our in our physical bodies and God is weeping and grieved and I don't know when God is stretching out his right hand to do what only he can do in the body of someone else. Hmm. It's almost like baking a cake. Like I know the ingredients that have created the equation, but I couldn't actually tell you the proportions of those ingredients, therefore I can't bake the cake. <laughs> um, but what I know is I will pray for healing when 
that that is desired by the ailing person and they have faith to receive it because sometimes God might just do that. And if not, then I really believe that he is faithful to provide his presence to lead us through. So I just think we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater on certain aspects of this. Therefore, it doesn't logically follow. This is where like the apprenticeship metaphor breaks down a little because there's not a ton of mystery if you're an apprentice to a mechanic and like how to repair a Toyota Corolla. You know what I mean? Like you just learn the right information. Ultimately, you should be able to sort it out. Right. And there's a lot more mystery when it comes to the human soul. Yes. And to the healing of persons. But still, the basic category of we are learning from Jesus how to say and do the kinds of things he said and did is just utterly essential to what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. My name is Tobias and I'm from Germany. I am 31 years old and I've been married to my wife for nine years now and we have three daughters. Vocationally, I'm a doctor and a clinical scientist at Cologne University Hospital. And uh, yeah, about three years ago, I first came across the concept of practicing the way of Jesus. At that time, it seemed very new to me, although I had actually been a Christian all my life, which was um, a little surprising to me. And at that point of my life, I was increasingly noticing all the symptoms of hurry sickness in my life and in my emotional state of being, primarily in the way I was as a father and a husband to those closest to me. And starting to implement the practices of Jesus in my own life, including especially daily stillness and a time for deep prayer and communion with God, a life of simplicity, of digital minimalism, weekly practices such as a Sabbath and a more intentional approach to community with other Christians, but also people far from God, has been absolutely revolutionary to me and my life. I have experienced such a peace of mind in my times with Jesus. I've grown to love him and experience him so much more intimately. And I've begun to notice a change in my decision making, my patience, my attraction to materialistic values, and also my ability to love people who are difficult, to love myself, forgive myself and forgive other people. Um, Yeah, it's just been really stunning to see what actually can happen if you put your spiritual formation under the authority of Jesus. And um, yeah, I really feel like I found the way of Jesus now, which before I had sort of been jogging next to, but never fully stepped on. And it has really begun to change me. My family also, and my kids are already practicing this now. And um, yeah, it started to influence my wider church community even as well. I've talked some about the fruit and gifts of the Spirit, but I actually think in your book, you give a framework, a three-part framework for, so do what Jesus did. That can seem like an overwhelming amount of stuff. Yeah, he did a lot. Yeah, but I thought that you synthesized that in a way that was really helpful to me. Could you break that down for us? How? What did Jesus do? I mean, it may or may not be helpful. This is not, there are different ways you could categorize it. Um, different boxes you could put it into. I kind of organized it around this 
idea so key to Jesus, so key to the four gospels of the gospel. Like the four biographies of Jesus are called the gospel, according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John. And all of those are the gospel, which is a, a, a key learning. And so I just kind of organized it around these three basic practices of making space for the gospel, preaching the gospel, and demonstrating the gospel. Making space for the gospel is basically just code for hospitality. So one of my favorite things about Jesus is when you read the Jesus stories, he's constantly eating meals with people. Yes. Like, I mean, there's this uh, Robert Karras, who's a New Testament scholar with an expertise on the Gospel of Luke, has this great line about how in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either on his way to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Mm -hmm. It's like the whole Gospel is about Jesus just going from table to table, meal to meal. And it was interesting, when Jesus was dealing with what we would call religious conservatives, he would often use preaching as his way of calling them into deeper life in the kingdom. But when Jesus was dealing with a tax collector mm. or a sex worker or an, uh, a disabled person that had been ostracized by the society, yeah. we don't have a lot of examples of him preaching Sermon on the Mount to them. He would normally invite them to a table mm. or invite himself to their table. Yeah. In Zacchaeus court, you know, yeah. Luke, uh, Luke Karras has this, also has this idea, Robert Karras also has this idea that wherever Jesus went, he was always the host, not the guest. Right. Even if he came to your house, he would come as the host in a sense. Yeah. And so Jesus ate meals with his enemies. He ate meals with people far from God. And meals, you know, were deeply symbolic in Jesus' day. Sociologists call them boundary markers. They're still symbolic. Like even in our quote-unquote egalitarian society, you know, where you eat dinner, how much money you spend on dinner, who you eat dinner with, all are lines of demarcation between what class you're in, what kind of person you're in, who you're in relationship with. The type with, of food you eat. type of food. Yeah. yeah, the grocery store you go to. I mean, all of this. Mm -hmm. And Jesus used meals not as an opportunity to keep people out, but to invite people in. Mm -hmm. Not as a boundary marker, but as an open welcome of the Father's love. Mm -hmm. And I deeply believe that in our post-Christian cultural moment, and what I mean by that is where the cultural tide, at least in more urban and progressive centers, has moved from maybe if there was a day forever ago when it was positive on the Christian faith, and then there was a time where it was neutral on the Christian faith, hey, you do you. Now we've moved into a time where the prevailing cultural consensus is negative mm -hmm. on Christian spirituality. So, um, you know, the fact that you would identify as a Christian or follower of Jesus is, is a mark against you in yeah. the eyes of most people. It's not helping me socially very no, much. Yeah. not at all. And uh, again, this changes based on your cultural context. Totally. But where you and I live, I mean, certainly, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you have to be careful who you say that to, almost in a sense, yeah. you know. In that kind of a cultural milieu, I still think the table is absolutely where everything begins. It's where we begin to carry out the life of Jesus. The table is the center of Christian community, and it's the center of what we would call evangelism, what Jesus called just preaching the gospel to people mm -hmm. far from God. So that's kind of you know rhythm number one or way of being number one, making space for the gospel. One thing on that before you move to the next one, I think it's so central and helpful, that second insight from Karis that you named, that... Jesus is the host everywhere he goes. Yes. Because we think, when we use the word hospitality, most people think place. 
Yes. Like to be hospitable, I have to be bringing people into my place. And my we think like kinfolk, or if you're totally. older, Martha Stewart, yeah. the, like fine china and beautiful food and Instagram worthy table set. Exactly. That's yes. not so, what the New Testament writers mean by hospitality. Right. It's it's personal, not geographic. Right. It's not yeah. to come to this place. It's the way I carry my person. It's the way you welcome people under the welcoming heart of God. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. No, so well said. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah, I mean, I think the next rhythm for me would be preaching the gospel. That's mm -hmm. New Testament language. It's wildly unpopular, in particular for people our age, you know, and younger because it's been done so badly, so um, ungraciously at times, so... Uh, lacking in cultural sensitivity. Yeah. And so I think one of the first things that's really helpful for me as I realize I've developed a bit of an unhealthy emotional allergy to preaching the gospel or evangelism. I mean, I'm just, I've spent my whole life in this very postmodern pluralistic culture where to make truth claims to the world at large and, you know, in particular about faith and spirituality is just anathema to most people around me, you know? Just, you believe whatever you want to believe, but keep it to yourself and shut up and don't bring it right. to the public square is basically how we feel, you exactly. know? Exactly, yeah, that's the, that's the ethic of our That time. is the ethic, yeah. yeah. And I think it's helpful for me to realize that every single person you know is preaching a gospel whether it's the gospel of Jesus or the gospel of third wave anti-racism mm -hmm. or the gospel of pride and all things queer theory or the gospel of democratic socialism or the gospel of fiscal conservatism or the gospel of therapy and trauma-informed therapy or the gospel of winter swimming and cold plunging or mm -hmm. psychedelic mushrooms or habit stacking or you name it. Everybody is evangelizing. Everybody is spreading a message. That's what a gospel is. It's a word. It's a message about what is the good life? Where is hope to be found? How do we become a good person? Where is there a community we can belong to? Yep. Where can we be loved? Where can we find salvation? Even if that's not the language that people would use. Everybody is, everybody you know is preaching a gospel. They are talking about where they believe hope lies. Yeah. Followers of Jesus are just those who preach his gospel. Mm -hmm. And this is natural. Like, we talk about what we love. I mean, it's like whenever you see a really good film or TV series or you and I love to swap fiction stories right. or memoirs. Yeah. You and I share a love for memoirs. Whenever I read a really great memoir, I have to tell you about right. it. Or yeah. if I hear an amazing podcast, I'm like, oh, you got to listen to this podcast mm -hmm. on cold plunging or whatever. Yeah. Like, you need to know about this. Mm -hmm. Like that deep human impulse of I've discovered something good and beautiful and true. I need to tell other people need to know about this. That is an impulse that the spirit of God is trying to let out of our bodies and preaching the gospel. And yeah. the cultural pressure for us to suppress it is overwhelming externally and internally. But we need to let it out. I mean, uh, Frank Laubach, who we both love, yes. dead now as a missionary many years ago, intellectual, has this secret law he writes about, secret spiritual law where you, ha he writes, to possess God, you have to give him away. Hmm. And in order to experience, if you want to experience God, 
you have to give him away. You have to tell people about him. And what you will find is as you tell people about him, you will discover him all over again. Mm. So, yeah, preaching the gospel. And then the third one is what we were talking about early, demonstrating the gospel. Jesus didn't just talk. He would often talk and then go do things or do things and then talk to explain what he just did. He would heal the sick. He'd prophesy. He'd deliver people from demonic spirits. He'd stand up against political injustice and oppression. He would speak the truth. He would do these acts that demonstrated, not just in talk, you know, but in deed, not just in word, but in deed, the kingdom of God breaking in, which was the center of his gospel. And I think that's where our preaching of the gospel must also accompany our demonstrating of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. So all I need to do is be a person of hospitality everywhere I go, do the things Jesus did and preach the message Jesus preached. Obviously, it's Easy. possible and that none this of us would are sound like a lot. Out yeah. at all. <laughs> so it's possible that someone would be going, man, that sounds like a lot. Simply casually talking about Jesus to one neighbor is overwhelming to me. How can I think about yes. all this? So yeah. what would you say to that person? Well, I know exactly how you feel. It's how all of us feel. Um, Thomas Kelly, who's a now-dead Quaker writer that we both love, mm -hmm. this is a beautiful little book on the spiritual life called A Testament of Devotion. And his last chapter, he writes about what he calls the joyous burdens of love. And he has this insight that the heart of God is universal, literally. It is for the universe, for all people everywhere to experience all of the kingdom of God. But that universal heart of God comes through the particular. I'm not God. We're finite, not infinite. Mm. We're mortal, not immortal. We can't express all of the heart of God to all people everywhere for all time. We're so incredibly short-lived and mortal and in our body. And so he writes about how this universal heart of God will lay on each disciple of Jesus a particular burden. And he calls it, I love his language, the joyous burdens of love. So not a burden mm -hmm. in a negative sense, just like a little thing that God will put on your heart. And I think there are daily examples of this, like where you just it just comes to your heart to call a neighbor or a friend or to check in with somebody you know that is struggling or to drop a gift for somebody or write a thank you card or send a text. And then I think at a larger level, part of the discernment process for a disciple of Jesus is knowing, listen, I can't do all of this and I don't need to. What is, but I do want to apprentice under Jesus, what is it that, what's the gift that the spirit of Jesus is wanting to bring to the wider world through me? Mm. It might be small, it might be humble, it might have to do with your work or your job. It might have to do with a volunteer act. It might have to do with your family or your parenting or your relational world. It might have to do with your neighborhood. It might have to do with a justice issue. Um, but is there one or two or three, just a few joyous burdens of love? And it will feel like joy. It will feel not like stress and anxiety. And, oh, no, I'm already burned out and overwhelmed. I can't do it more. It will feel like desire. It will feel like this little uplifting your heart. Oh, I really wish I could do more to help on this justice issue. I really feel like I want to spend more time with this neighbor. I really feel like when I do this, like goodness is coming through me. Pay attention to those joyous burdens mm -hmm. of love. They are likely the signpost to Jesus calling your life.
Yeah, and that also ties into the imperative of community, right? Yeah. We know that individuals cannot fully express the heart of God, but the church can because yes. we're all a part of a body. And so whether the church looks like 5,000 people that gather on Sundays in an auditorium or a handful of people that gather in a living room on a regular basis to share a meal and open the scriptures and love one another, God has equipped the church to be his body to the world. And so as we each play the part that we're given by the joyous burdens of love, we trust that the heart of the Father is being expressed. And no one ever said that more beautifully than Teresa of Avila, who mm. said, Christ has no body now but yours. Mm. Go out and be Christ's body to the world. Practicing the Way is a crowdfunded nonprofit made possible by The Circle, a group of people from all over the world who believe deeply in the work of spiritual formation and discipleship and give monthly to see formation integrated into the church at large. I'm Peter, living in Bristol in the UK, and I'm a part of this community. Practicing the Way has shown me how to resist the deformation of the modern world and experience more of the life of Jesus in my personal context and stage of life. To join myself and others in the circle or to share a one-time gift, visit practicingtheway.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening to season one of the Practicing the Way podcast. This conversation was based on John Mark's newest book, Practicing the Way, Be With Jesus, Become Like Jesus, Do As He Did, which is available now wherever books are sold. This podcast was created by Practicing the Way, a nonprofit working to integrate the best learnings of spiritual formation into the church at large. We offer a library of free resources for churches and small groups, including practices, four-week experiences designed to be run in community that train you to integrate ancient disciplines like Sabbath, prayer, and more into your everyday life with God, an upcoming Practicing the Way course, an eight-week primer on apprenticeship to Jesus, a digital tool called the Rule of Life Builder, podcasts, and more. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit, and all of these resources are completely free, thanks to the generosity of The Circle and other givers from around the world. To join The Circle, run a practice, or learn more, visit practicingtheway.org.